If, uh, if you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Here's the gospel. I'm going to go ahead. Let's just define it first. Um, the gospel is this. Jesus satisfied the wrath of God upon the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Then Jesus breathed His Spirit upon us so that we could have power over sin. Jesus paid the penalty for sin, rises from the grave, gives us the power over sin. Pays the penalty, gives us the power. That's the gospel. Takes care of sin. There's a debt to be paid and there is, there's a bondage to be broken. Jesus accomplishes it both. If you found that text, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to read about how Jesus gives that power to us. And John records this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let's pray. Father, by that same Spirit this morning, help me to preach the good news of Jesus. And by that very same Spirit, let us receive that good news this morning. Amen. You may be seated. Do you all wait for me to say you may be seated or do you just be seated? I just wait. Some of y'all, I think, wait for me to say it. You don't need to wait. BJ's like, I'm still standing unless you say it. Um, there are a few passages in Scripture that explain what the relationship between Jesus and the Holy Spirit better than this one. And just so that we're clear, here's what I'm trying to say this morning. When Jesus breathes His Holy Spirit upon His church, they are participating in nothing less than the inner life and mission of the triune God. I'm going to say that one more time. When Jesus breathes His Holy Spirit upon His church, they are participating in nothing less than the inner life and mission of the triune God. When you think God's sending His Holy Spirit, do you think about Him breathing it on you? It's a kind of a different picture in your head, isn't it? We think of oftentimes about God, maybe God from His throne sending the Spirit, but here in this text, we've got Jesus breathing the Spirit. What does that look like? I don't know. When I first read this text many years ago, I thought of, uh, maybe not the first time I'd read it, but I thought of uh, Green Mile, like when John Coffey like goes, <laughs> you know, stuff. I don't know how it happened, but it, it's not necessary that we understand how. It's understanding why and what. Meaning, Jesus is giving them the Holy Spirit for a purpose, and it's not a mystical force the Spirit is not some, um, some divine magic that God is giving them. Jesus is breathing on His disciples something from His own being. Something that's most precious to Him. 
The Holy Spirit is the best gift God has to give His church. So good that we could, in a very real sense, we could say that Jesus is giving His church Himself. He didn't just give His life on the cross. Now He's breathing His life on the church. Which is amazing to think. I'm gonna, we've got, got two points here. The Spirit first is resurrection power. Jesus is like, you see what I just did? I did it by the Holy Spirit. Now I'm giving it to you. Jesus isn't just sending out His church on their own strength. The Great Commission is by God's own power. That's how we know it will succeed. The church runs on resurrection power. When I look at social media, and I look on Twitter or Facebook, or I read the news, or I, well, I don't really read the news anymore, I watch it. I don't think the church is doing too well. I think it looks worldly. I think that uh, we're giving up the basic fundamentals of the faith. When I, when I watch social media and what people put on, the church looks like it's failing. It looks too political. It looks too cultural. It looks like, uh, I mean, can't we just get back? Throw a rock and hit a church where um, we see that sinners are losing um, the integrity of the gospel. When I look at the world, I don't think the church is doing too well. When I read the Bible... It tells me that the church is doing quite well. It runs on the power of the Holy Spirit and it cannot fail. That's why so-called Christians who don't read God's word are generally more pessimistic about the church than those who are going and listening to God's voice. God has gone to great lengths to remind us that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because it runs on resurrection power. If you don't read your Bible, you will not think very well about the success of the church. If you're reading your Bible, you will find confidence because God is saying it ain't just predicted. I will make it happen. People who are saturated in God's word are generally always more optimistic about the power and success of God than those who are not going and listening to the shepherd's voice. Number two, the Holy Spirit is the very life and breath of Jesus. Verse 22. I didn't put it up there, but when he, when, this is verse 22. It's very short. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them. Again, I don't know what that looked like. But he is giving them his own life. Jesus is giving them himself. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit is ruach. Really wish Seth were here, our classicist right now. Meaning wind or breath or spirit. The, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, ruach, for spirit, can also mean wind or breath. In the New Testament, the Greek word for spirit is pneuma, which could mean wind or breath. So we're to understand the Holy Spirit is the very breath of God. Jesus is breathing the deepest, most beautiful part of himself upon his bride. And if it is, in fact, a marriage, could we really think of it being anything less? Husbands, is there anything you would hold back from yourself that you would not lavish on your bride? Is there anything upon your... Maybe you did, I don't know. We've got a couple... Actually, Johnsons aren't here, but they are. Well, actually, no, we've got two engaged couples. Um, Cody and Shay are not here. 
But Wyatt and Olivia are here. I'm embarrassing you right now and you'll hate me later. But when they get married, there's nothing Wyatt's going to hold back from Olivia. There's nothing that he's going to... Hey, that's why I'm, there's no prenup. Jesus doesn't have a prenup when he marries his bride. He gives them himself and he weds them. And the Holy Spirit is the wedding ring that puts it on. You kind of came up with that. I like that. But We can think of the Holy Spirit not just some magical force that Jesus wants the church to have. The Spirit is coming from Jesus himself. Romans 8, 9, I didn't put it up there, but Romans 8, 9 is a, is a wonderful verse because in one verse, Paul calls the Spirit, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. There is no one who possesses the Holy Spirit who does not possess the Holy Spirit by God the Son. I'm going to say that one more time. There is no one who possesses the Holy Spirit, who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who does not have the Spirit by God the Son. A little historical background this is one of the primary theological divisions between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Um, I don't know if a lot of you all knew, but in the 11th century, the Catholic Church, or the Church, was split into an Eastern wing and a Western wing. Constantinople being in the East, Rome being in the West. So the Roman Catholic Church today is the Western Church. There is an Eastern Orthodox Church. Have you ever raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Eastern Orthodox Church? Okay. One of the primary theological differences, you know, most of it's just a lot of it's political. But one of the primary theological differences between Western Catholics and Protestants and the Eastern Church or the Russian Church is that the Western Church, in the Augustinian tradition, we affirm that the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. The, Holy, the, the Eastern Church rejects that. The Eastern Church believes that God the Spirit only proceeds from God the Father, whereas the, the Western Church, we today believe and affirm and know through John 20 and other texts that the Holy Spirit proceeds from God the Father and God the Son. Let me say that in another way. God the Father and God the Son are on their throne now, both sending their Spirit. It is not just God the Father's Spirit. It is both of their Spirits. Does that make sense? That's deep. But you need to know, Jesus isn't borrowing the Spirit from God the Father to send it. It is Christ's Spirit too. Now, like I said, that's a big reason why we have, such a big, we have such a big view of what it means to be born again. If you are born of the Spirit, if you are born of Christ's Spirit, and you think that you can claim to be a Christian but not be utterly changed, if you think that you can be, if you can be indwelled by the Holy Spirit and not begin to live like Jesus, you're wrong because the entire purpose that Jesus gives His Spirit to His church is that we might live like Him. Jesus gave us the Spirit. There's a ton of reasons why Jesus gave us the Spirit, so I'm not thinking that I can list it in just five, but here's the five that I came up with. Jesus gave His Spirit so that we would be set free from the power of sin. We would be adopted into the family of God. We would have a guarantee of our salvation. We would recall Jesus' teachings and have the Word imprinted on our hearts and that we would live like Jesus did. There you go. That's why God gives us the Spirit. It's not so that we can just have warm and fuzzies about the fact that God loves us. He actually wants us to do something with the Spirit. 
Therefore, if I am to confront someone about unrepentant sin, if I see a a fellow brother or sister um, who's living in sin, in the bondage of sin, it's not judgy for me to go and confront them with sin. I have such a high view of the Holy Spirit, and I have such a high view of Jesus, that if someone claims to be indwelled with His Spirit, I'm going to help them. Live like Jesus and help them to live as Jesus would have them. I think one of the best ways to think of the Spirit is to think of Him as the love and the holiness and the beauty of God. There is nothing in the world I could give you more precious than myself. Now you can have my money. Not a lot of it. You can have it if you want. There's not, I can give you my time. My time is precious. I'm going to tell you right now, if I give you a lot of my time, I must like you. I can give you my, uh, my things if you want them. I'll give you my things. But the most precious thing I have is my own life. There's no, what does he say? There's no greater love than this that what? Lays down a life for his friends. I can give you myself, and if I'm giving you my life, that's the most valuable thing I have, and that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. That is the love of God for his church. He says, I'm going to give you my I'm going to give you salvation, but what I'm really going to give you is myself. God saves sinners so that he can give them himself. And we see it right here in this text when Jesus breathes his spirit upon the church. Now, in verse 21, we see that Jesus isn't simply giving them his life. He's giving them his mission. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So there's a Trinitarian pattern here. God sends his Son. The Son sends his little Christs. Y'all remember in Acts 11? What is a Christian? The word Christian begins in the book of Acts in chapter 11 in, the, in Antioch when um, that's where they're called Christians, but the, they're called Christians because a Christian is a quote-unquote little Christ. When I was young, my dad was a football coach, and we went, I mean, I lived on, in the fall. If I wasn't at a football field, I must have been hurt because that's, that's where I lived. Every Friday night, it didn't matter where Apollo High School was playing their football game, I was going there. And I was watching with mom as dad coached. And some of the best memories I have are at high school football games. A lot of y'all are going, man, you're in Kentucky too, you didn't even see real football. But we loved football. And because dad was a football coach, I loved football. Because dad played, I wanted to play too. Dad would let us down on the field every time. Imagine that. Imagine me at nine years old getting to walk around with the football team. Oh man, I thought I was something. Dad gave us jerseys. I don't know how he did that, but we had them. I got to sit on the jerseys. I got to be a ball boy. Doesn't sound much now, but I thought it was—I thought it was neat. I got to go and throw with the football or with with the, with the quarterback before the games. We got to meet all the players, and Dad was letting us do what he did. And there wasn't anything more I wanted than to walk with Dad on the sidelines. That was an honor for me, and because we were his boys, we shared his love 
of football. That's the kind of thing that God the Father wants for His church. He dresses us up. He dresses us up in royal robes. He gives us the most precious thing He has, His Son. He adorns us in His righteousness. And then He says, come on down to the field. I'm going to let you do what I do. I sent the Son. Now go and tell people the Son. So just as I shared the Son with you, now you get to go share the Son with others. God the Father is inviting us down to the field so that we get to do a little bit of what He does and what He has done for us. Evangelism is kind of this. We get to share Jesus with others like God the Father shared Jesus with us. Y'all didn't know evangelism had to do with the Trinity, did you? There are two tricky theological points in this text that we need to address. You can't preach this text unless you address these two things. One, If Jesus is breathing His Spirit upon the disciples here, then how is this any different than Pentecost, roughly 50 days later? This is... Just because the Spirit is given to the church in the book of Acts in chapter 2, and just because Jesus breathes His Spirit upon His disciples in John 20, does not mean that the Spirit was not working in the lives of individuals prior to that. I believe the Holy Spirit... David, I believe, and I believe we should believe, that David was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I also know that John the Baptist was what? He had the Holy Spirit when he was born. So the Holy Spirit was at work in the purposes of God before John 20. We should affirm that. The difference is now the, the Spirit is being given corporately to His church in a way that has never been. It's like, kind of like, uh, I'm going to steal this from John Piper. Um, it's kind of like if you go to a dam, the dam is still letting out a trickle. You can go. Any dam is going to have a part. But when they, have you ever been around when they open up the dam? Pentecost in the New Covenant is God opening up the dam so that the Holy Spirit floods onto His church in a way that has never been. That's how we can make the distinction between what God is doing in the New Covenant and with the Old. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in the, in the Old Testament. We see the Holy, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters in Genesis, do we not? So the Holy Spirit has always been at work in His people. And you can get into whether the Holy Spirit indwelt Old Testament believers or whether it was just on. The, perp, the, the, the point for our text here today is Jesus is doing something new. Something that's never been done. And God is doing it through uh, Jesus Christ. The second question is this. What in the world are we supposed to make with the disciples get to decide who's forgiven and who's not? Did you see that? Does that mean that I'll be your pastor, I get to decide if you're forgiven of your sins or not? Maybe it does. If Franklin, if you don't bring coffee next week, you're done. Okay? If I'm displeased with the worship, no forgiveness of sins. I'm kidding. But this is an important text. The Catholic Church will take texts like this. The Catholic Church will take texts like Matthew 16. This is where they develop their doctrine of priestly absolution. This is why they come and Catholics believe that priests and the Catholic Church has the inherent authority to forgive sins. We don't understand that this text in that way. 
But we can't get around what Jesus says here. This is a good opportunity for us to work through passages and to understand the authority that God gives His church. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus gives Peter the keys to the kingdom. And says that whatever Peter, whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus is essentially saying the same kind of thing here in Matthew 16. Traditionally, it's understood that Jesus is talking about the same thing here in this text. He is not giving the disciples inherent authority in themselves. Let's get that out of the, out of the way here. All, the only authority that I have as a New Testament believer, and the only authority that Abi Todd has as a pastor, is the authority that is given unto me by Christ. Which is why the, 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 the position of pastor does not have authority inherent in its own position. For instance, I've heard people say uh, who want to speak up to the pastor or uh, challenge a pastor's teaching and somebody will go, hey, you don't touch the Lord's anointed. I don't get that. Just because I'm pastor does not make me infallible. The authority that I have is the authority that's given by me, given to me by God's word. Therefore, the second I am not faithful to the text of Scripture, I have lost the authority that is given to me inside the church. So the authority that God exercises in the church is always done by His own authority. We possess no inherent authority of ourselves. Let's get that straight. The second is, I understand and the church has traditionally understood the keys of the kingdom to mean that we have the authority, God's authority, by His word in the church to preach the saving gospel and to tell unbelievers that they will perish without that saving gospel. We also have the authority inside the church to tell those who claim to believe in the gospel that they should repent and daily submit themselves under the authority of Christ. And if they do not, if there's unrepentant sin in the church, it is our duty as Christians to come around our brothers and sisters in love, admonishing, encouraging, sharpening each other with the authority of Christ to say this, because we love you and we do not want you to perish, we are warning you now as someone who claims to believe in Christ, who is not walking according to His commands, we are warning you with the authority of the Scriptures that you will not be forgiven of your sins if you do not walk in faith. I believe that's what he's saying. That's very long-winded. This is what... This is church discipline. Um, We have the responsibility for the good of people's souls with the authority of Christ to command them to repent and believe in the name of Jesus. And we as the church have the authority to tell our brothers and sisters that they need to walk in the light of God's word. I believe that's what he's saying. Here's something else to think about. Church discipline is never simply for punishment's sake. Let's, I'm going to give you an example. If there's someone in this church who is unfaithful, let's, let's just pick on a man here. If there's someone in our church now who is unfaithful to his wife in a public way that demeans the name of Christ and stomps on the integrity of the gospel. If someone is doing that in our church, where we can look on and know, without a shadow of a doubt, that he is dismissing the authority and the love of God, we don't come along that person and stomp them. 
We warn them. We admonish them. And we do it all in love. But we don't do it just to punish them. We do it, as Paul says, to call them back to the fold. All church discipline is not simply punitive, it's prescriptive. All church discipline is to be done in such a way that we call people back to the fold and back to faith. Does that make sense? So our hope for someone who has walked out on his wife would be to go to him and call him back to his wife. Churches that misunderstand... There there are two extremes today. There are churches that do no church discipline and they let people live as they want and therefore the church begins to look like the world. And then there are people who act church discipline in such a way that they don't show God's love to those who have gone wayward. And that's when people start to resent the church and they misunderstand the authority of God and the integrity of the gospel. Does that make sense? Stephen Gaines is going to tell me whether I said that right or not. I think I said it right. If I couldn't say it right, here's how Andreas Kostenberger says it. Jesus is declaring that his new messianic community versus the Jewish leadership represented by the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees is is authorized to affirm or to deny acceptance into the believing covenant community. Now, we got through all that. I want to, here's how I think we should explain the Spirit and what we're seeing when Jesus breathes his Spirit on his church. My wife has been gone for four days. Longest I've ever been without my wife with the kids. We're on day four. And I'm kind of proud of myself, by the way. No bone is broken. They've watched Incredibles 2 like four times, but that's fine. Mama doesn't, she's not going to know about that. (laughs) They've been fed, they've been bathed. But when my wife left, okay, and, and she did so reluctantly, by the way. She doesn't think I, I mean, you, she's doing a lot better now. When we first got married or we first had our kids, my wife didn't trust to change a diaper. When she left, and I wish I had a picture for you, she laid out their clothes for every day. She made an eating schedule. It's taped to our fridge. Single-spaced, two pages. She even wrote me instructions on how to bathe them. As if I didn't know how to bathe. And she calls me and she texts me all day long. My wife did not leave us without a plan without a purpose, and with her own presence. And Jesus does something very similar when he ascends to the Father. He says, here's what I want you to do. Here is my will. And I'm going to give you my presence now, so that in some ways, in a very real way, I will never leave. He breathes His Spirit upon us so that we know His mission and we have the power to carry it out and we dare not take that lightly, church. For those who've surrendered to Jesus, He's going to take care of the rest. Just like my wife with that manifesto she left me. God has said, hey, here it is. And I'm going to give you someone else who's going to let you know what it says 
And he's going to be there when you don't believe it to call you back to it. For anyone this morning who has never thought of God in such terms, has never thought of the Bible like that, and has never thought of the work of the Holy Spirit as a helper to let you live as Christ would have you, if you've never trusted in Jesus and you thought you had to add to His work, you thought you had to do something on your own power, you have misunderstood the gospel, and I call you to confess Jesus as your Savior, confessing your sin, repenting, turning from it, confessing Jesus as Lord, and submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, that is the gospel, friends. And I implore implore you this morning to believe in it. Let's pray. Father, you have left us with a plan. Jesus' presence is here. Father, as Paul says, you have not left us as orphans. We are not blind. We are not powerless. Everything is from you, through you, and to you. Be all things. Father, you give the power so that you can get the praise. And we thank you for that power this morning. And all these things we ask in your precious son's name. Amen.